This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramia. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on air community, and everyone's invited. Welcome to Kelly and Ramia on Accessible Media Inc. I'm Ramia Amuthan. I'm Kelly McDonald. And we are the hosts of the show. We're here until 4 p.m. Eastern time after the long weekend. Most of us celebrating or recognizing Family Day, maybe spending that quality time with our families or just enjoying the day off. I don't know. You do you. But the thing is, coming back into a four-day week and coming back after three days of no show means we settle in and we think, how new and strange does this feel? Now, for Kelly, this is double the challenge because you weren't here Friday, Kels. So you've had a four-day weekend. Yeah, I had Uh a four-day weekend. It was nice. But I do want to ask, if I may just insert this question. So now when you have a week where there's four days for you here, Mm -hmm. how do you feel about it? Do you think of it differently since we've had so many talks with our friends at Robert Half about the four-day work week? It, it's, I can't compare it? it. I can't compare it because it, you know why? We're not working longer during the week to make up for the day we're off. Well, and that's not a necessarily a foregone conclusion that companies will want to do that. Sure. Maybe because it might mean paying a little less. Maybe people will have to make that trade-off of, of a day or, or get paid more for the time that they are at work but still get that four days I, don't I know mean, what I would love it if I got paid the same amount, I did the same amount of work, and just didn't have to show up on the Friday. Would you do it with the extra hour, two hours, I guess, to compensate that's two the, hours? That's the part I can't necessarily know. <sighs> Maybe our, our Fridays off in the summertime, you know, we have a little bit of yep. that experience with summer hours. Uh, yeah, I think we could do it. So, um, if you, when you get a week like this, it doesn't even come close to feeling it. You can't, in your no. mind, you can't compare. This is a one-off, four-day work week. No. This is what it would feel like every week. No, no. I'm too busy soaking it all in, enjoying that one day off, and thinking, oh, relish every moment until we have to go back to work. Uh, but absolutely not. And for you, coming back into it after a four-day weekend, you feeling ready? No. Ready, set, go? Uh, feeling feeling ready, but I will tell you, I never ever, even at the best of times, conceive a four-day work week. It's just mm. too beyond me yep. to even comprehend. Yep. Like, it really is. With what we do, maybe if I was in another job, I could think about it, but no. The good news is we still have four shows this week, minus the one we missed yesterday. So let's tell everybody what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramia. What is considered air pollution. We're talking air quality with Francis Wong today and talking about the concerns around it as well. Well, Young Wong, she discusses relationships today, the good, the bad, and the lessons we can take from these experiences. And on our Voices segment, which we have monthly on the show, manager of AMI-audio Andy Frank is joining us, and he's all the way in Vienna. He's uh, taking part in the Zero Project. A whole bunch of other people from AMI are there as well, so we'll get to know more about that trip and more about Andy on Voices. Let's move to something really fun. Well, just a couple, I guess. What about us? 
Yeah, I know. Okay, we don't, don't. You scared me. Wow. Ooh. Not this time. But maybe we made a case for next time. No. We can definitely make it. Uh, <laughs> <let's>... <laughs> Sorry, did I laugh out loud? Uh-huh. Let's talk about the Snow King. All right, so the Snow King and his dedicated crew have been hard at work the past two months building a giant castle from ice and snow on the frozen Yellowknife Bay of Great Slave Lake. The castle is going to host the Snow King's Winter Festival next month. And Anthony Folio is the Snow King himself. Let's learn more about it. In the fall time, we're cutting ice. That's quite fun. Lots of camaraderie. Then the build is quite fun. More camaraderie, bigger crew. And during the festival, lots of smiling faces, little people. The children are so wonderful. They bring you cookies. They give you hugs. You're like better than Santa. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so the construction crew has been building blowing snow into wood forms and then tamping it down to create walls. They've carved out windows uh, with ice or panes, uh, for panes, I mean, and they've been chiseling details into the snow as well. Uh, so, Kelly, this is such a cool reason oh, to be yeah. in Yellowknife at this time. Oh, anywhere where any of these are built is so amazing, but this sounds so grand, so big. Um, I was in one in Quebec City when we were shooting Blindsided, and it was amazing. Had a great time. They took their time with me. Well, up until they realized that the prime minister, who was also that day doing a run through the the, the event at Carnival, uh, they when they found out he was on his way, they were very quickly to complete with us. But to think of something this big and the time that these guys put into it, Ramya, what a cool thing to mess oh, around gosh, in. Yeah. And literally cool. It's honestly been 28 years since they started it. Uh, they just had to kind of... Uh, uh, reinvented a little bit in 2019 and 2020, but they are back at it. They have a whole theme. It's Funhouse this year, and they have slides, oh, and wow. <laughs> you you know go out into the frozen lake. You have hot cocoa. There are there's music. There's uh, an international snow carving symposium. Like they've gone all out. So I checked the weather for Yellowknife today, and it was minus 31 degrees without wind chill. And I'm thinking, uh, but. Something like this is the absolute way to embrace winter. You would be warm in that snow palace. Snow Let's keeps hope. you warm. Let's hope. Yeah. At least minus 28. It's, it's technically supposed <laughs> At least minus 28. Yeah. <laughs> we are not going to think about the frostbite in seconds. We'll just be happy for the snow castle in Yellowknife. We're taking a break and we're coming back to talk to Dr. Danielle Jeankind on Ask a Veterinarian. Uh, and she's talking about urinary tract infections in our pets. We'll be right back. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. We were talking about the uh, Snow King's Ice Castle in Yellowknife and how it's been going on for give or take 30 years now. And the reason why this whole tradition started was because apparently the kids were using the leftover snow that was, uh, you know, being banked up uh, after a snowplow to build their own little snow forts. And then the adults came out and they were like, you guys aren't doing it right. Let me let me show you how it's done, how it's really done. And then they built this magnificent mm. castle, castle one year. And that was it. It became a tradition. Dirty, I mean, talk about embracing. Well, right? 
if you're using all that snow that the plows have pulled, pushed yeah, up, it's got all yeah. the and stuff like that. So Probably. they were really just saying, kids, get out of there and stop getting into those snow banks and stuff in case the plow I comes back. I don't know. It sounded Dangerous. like they were pretty serious about the snow and the ice. Also interesting, too, how they would have done it. Like now they've got their whole skills now. Yes. Imagine the first time yes. that they're carting these snow yeah. blocks over. Oh, wow. That was an elaborate, like, and I mean an absolute yeah. elaborate spectacle. So... Pretty cool. I'm Ramia Amuthan. Kelly McDonald is the other person here. We are the hosts of Kelly and Ramia, and it's time for us to get into Ask a Vet with Dr. Danielle Jonkind. Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. We have Dr. Danielle Jonkine joining us here with the avatar of a kitty cat using a purple phone on image on screen, or as the image on screen. And Danielle, we have a serious topic to get into today, so let's talk about it. Some medical conditions are seen more often in pets than others. And if your pet's female, you're more likely to have taken her to the vet for this one at some point. Today, we're talking about urinary tract infections in pets, uh, the symptoms, what we can do about them, and how we might prevent them from coming back to our pets. Find out more about all this. Like, as I said, we mentioned that female pets are more likely to have been to the pet for urinary tract infections, UTIs, Danielle. Why is this? Well, you know, it, it actually has to do with anatomy. You know, there are all kinds of bacteria kind of hanging out on the skin, the hair, and in the environment. And, you know, some of these, of course, are supposed to be there, you know, kind of living in harmony with the pet and the other microbes around them. But others are what we call pathogenic, you know, which means that if they manage to kind of invade and start rapidly multiplying in the body, they'll cause an infection. And in the case of urinary tract infections, you know, this means that they can sometimes get into, you know, the opening where the urine comes out, the urethra, and start tracking upward into the bladder. And, um, you know, this, this urethra is, that, of course, the tube that carries urine from the bladder to the outside of the body. And in males, you know, that urethra is much longer than it is in females. And, you know, the immune system should really be fighting the invaders the whole way up there. So, you know, the bacteria find it a lot harder to make it all the way to the bladder in males compared to females, who, of course, have a much shorter urethra. And, you know, I don't mean to make it seem that males can't get urinary tract infections. Of course they can, but, you know, it's just more common in, in females. So when we're at home, what might we see um, if our pets do have a urinary tract infection? Well, you know, any pet might suddenly be, you know, urinating in the house when they normally would mm -hmm. never do that. Um, you know, dogs might be asking to go out a lot more than usual, and cats might be making more frequent trips to the litter box. Um, you might notice, like, uh, blood or a pinky or orangey discoloration in the urine. Um, if your pet's urinary habits suddenly change, um, you can check for this by slipping a container under a dog when they go outside to urinate. Or in the case of a cat, you know, you can put some white paper towel under a thin layer of kitty litter and check it after your cat leaves the box because that, you know, if it runs down into the paper towel, you can see any discoloration. Um, you might also notice that, you know, the urine has an unusually foul smell, you know, or maybe that your pet is licking down there when they pee out of. Um, and 
and they might only be passing like a small amount of urine every time they go. So, you know, these are all signs that, uh, you know, something's going on and maybe you better get that looked at. I mean, this sounds very similar to, if not exactly the same as symptoms you would see in humans during urinary tract infections. And uh, I can imagine how uncomfortable it is for our pets, but is it, Im is it necessary for the uh, pets to go see a vet for a urinary tract infection diagnosis, or can we just call our vets and get the medications? Well, you know, you should always follow your vet's advice on this, but, you know, it's almost always recommended that you make an appointment and take your pet in if you think they have a urinary tract infection um, because the symptoms of them are almost identical to the symptoms you might see if your pet has a urinary obstruction. Oh. So, you know, obstru obstructions can rapidly progress to being fatal if they're left untreated. So mm -hmm. you'll want to make sure that that isn't what's going on. Um, your pet might, or I'm sorry, your vet might also want to check your pet to make sure they don't have any conditions that predispose them to getting urinary tract infections in the first place. And of course, dealing with any of those conditions will help to prevent future problems. Um, they'll probably also want to run some tests on a urine sample. So we have a test called the urinalysis, which, you know, checks how well the kidneys can concentrate the urine. It looks for evidence of blood in the urine and inflammation. It also checks the pH, which is important. Um, and then they also will spin the urine down and look at what we call the sediment, which is all the stuff that is kind of, you know, falling out of the urine, the not liquid stuff. And it's looking for evidence of crystals, uh, cancer cells, and bacteria. Um, so, you know, this potentially gives your vet a lot of really good information, you know, on how well your pet's kidneys are working, whether or not an infection is present, and just checks for the possibility of things like cancer or, you know, stones in the bladder. So, you know, there's there's lots of reasons to get that investigated and not just go, oh, it just seems like whatever, you know, we'll just call for some medication. Yeah. To me, I hear you say that, and if, if I were in that situation, anything come up now that I've heard all that, I would be in a moment like got to go see the vet because there just sounds like so many things that whether it's a blockage or any of these other multiple things that you mentioned even if you're being a little oh am i being a little paranoid yeah you know what be a little paranoid um how can we get a urine sample from our pet <laughs> i actually get this question a lot um and I of bet. course dogs yeah, dogs are usually a little easier to collect urine samples from than cats are. But, you know, we do have a few tricks that we could talk about. So, you know, with dogs, um, it's easiest to use like a short container, you know, like something about as tall as one of those like 250 ml sour cream containers, you know, like the little short ones. Um, you know, you want to wash it, um, make sure it's completely dry. Um, and you want to take your dog outside on a short leash, you know, and when they squat or lift their leg, you want to slip the container underneath them to catch the urine. It's important to get the container under there before they hit the ground, right? Um, <laughs> Of course, the staff at your vet clinic can also help you with this, you know, um, by collecting urine for you, you know, while you're at your appointment. But that has to assume that your pet has some urine in there when you happen to be at the vet clinic to pass. You know, if not, you might have to get some at home. And, of course, you know, collecting from cats is a little bit harder. Um, it's a rare person who is able to follow their cat to the litter box and just catch when they go to the bathroom. Um, instead, you know, you can put a clean, dry litter box out with special urine collection materials in it for a litter. Um, and these special litters, you know, sometimes they're made of plastic beads. Um, there's actually a really cool urine collection sandwich. 
is kind of amazing, really. I like to play with it at work there. <laughs> you can put water on it, and the water bubbles up into like it looks like a marble, and you can roll it around. You're like, wow, that's so cool. Um, alternatively, using <laughs> alternatively, you can use unpopped popcorn kernels, you know. Um, oh. And so when the cat urinates into the box, mm. you know, you can pour that liquid urine into a container and take it in. And, of course, the third way to get urine from either a cat or a dog is, is for your vet to actually, you know, take it directly from the bladder with a needle and syringe. And that procedure is called the cystocentesis. And it's the best way to collect urine if your vet wants to run what's called a culture and sensitivity test. And that's commonly run with, with urinary tract infections to make sure that, you know, we know which bacteria is causing the problem and which antibiotic we want to use to treat it. Danielle, are there other tests the vet may want to run in this context? Possibly. Um, depending on your pet's history, um, their exam and their urine test results, you know, your vet might also suggest some imaging of your pet's bladder. So um, the most common types of urinary stones will show up on plain x-rays. Um, stones are most often seen in the bladder, but you can sometimes find them in the kidneys and in the tubes that carry urine from the kidneys to the bladder. Um, there are a few types of stones that don't show up on x-rays, but fortunately they aren't very common. Um, so if we suspect, you know, anything um, like a stone that won't show up on x-ray or something like a bladder tumor, your vet might recommend an ultrasound. Um, you know, so that's another option. Um, another way of imaging the bladder is by something called cystoscopy, you know, where they put a small camera up the urethra and into the bladder. It's not commonly recommended in pets, but for when it is, you know, referral clinics are the only ones who are likely to have the equipment needed to do it. And lastly, you know, if your vet has any suspicion that your pet's kidneys are compromised or, you know, the urine test indicates that they may have diabetes, you know, they might also suggest doing a blood test. Okay. I'm kind of curious because often you get repeat situations. So what about pets who seem to get a lot of urinary tract infections? How can we prevent that from happening? Well, you know, there are lots of possible reasons why some pets seem to get urinary tract infections over and over again. Um, pets that have this problem, you know, um, might have some kind of underlying abnormality that predisposes them to having this problem. Um, and, of course, it's important to identify what that is and to correct it if you can. Um, some pets have a genetic predisposition toward forming crystals and stones in the urine. And, you know, you really can't change that, you know, but there may be some things you can do to manage that problem. So, for example, your vet might suggest that you feed your pet a prescription diet. Um, you can also encourage your pet to drink more water, you know, and we can do that. Sometimes there are some water flavorings that can help. You can add some canned food um, or some water to their kibble. Um, and some pets really like the pet fountains rather than drinking out of a bowl. Uh, and, of course, the more water they drink, the more stuff will sort of get flushed out of the bladder, you know, when they urinate. So that's important. Um, another important thing for dogs especially is to make sure they get out to urinate more often. Um, you know, the longer the urine is sitting in the bladder, the more likely it is that anything dissolved in it is going to precipitate out and stick together to form stones. So, you know, for those little dogs that don't drink a lot of water and they sit in the house, you know, and they don't, they only go out once a day to pee, like that can, you know, predispose them toward forming stones. So you're going to want to make sure they get out more often. 
And, you know, another crucial thing is to watch your pet's weight. Um, some female dogs get skin infections around where they urinate from, and, and instead of, you know, the tissue hanging down like it's supposed to, it's kind of the opening is kind of all tucked up inside a pocket, and the pocket is deeper and hides more moisture if the dog is overweight. Um, so, you know, weight loss and keeping, you know, the pockets around this area clean and dry will go a long way to helping prevent some of the urinary tract infections in female dogs. So lots of things that, you know, everybody can do. The uh, keeping hydrated part is really interesting, Danielle, that you point that out because I I have, you know, several friends with cats especially um, who say my cat doesn't drink enough water and the conversations that they've had to have with their vets. And obviously the UTIs are one thing, um, side effect of that kind of dehydration and not enough drinking water. But it's interesting the things you point out in order to get your cats um, having more fluid in their bodies. And, you know, cats cats are definitely the masters of their own destiny. I mean, <laughs> you know, as much as we wish that our cats would drink more water, eat the food we want them to eat yeah, for their right. own health, they're yeah. like not going to do it if they don't want to do it. So whatever you can oh. do to, you know, bribe them to do it is probably a good thing, yeah. And the wet food, right? Like having more wet food options, yeah. canned food options, yeah. Yeah, awesome. for sure, definitely. Danielle, lots to think about here and lots to pay attention to with our pets. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. Danielle Johnkind joins us on Tuesdays for Ask a Veterinarian, and every week we cover uh, anything and everything related to our pets. I like the urgency. Yeah. I, like That she brought this topic up because there are a lot of things there. I think people, oh, well, I don't have to take my dog out or my, you know, too much. That's nice. You know, but you don't really think about the damage. No, no. Lots of side effects to, to think about and how they'll affect your uh, dogs and cats in the long run. After the break, we're talking air pollution, something that affects us. What exactly is it and why are we concerned about it? Francis Wong is diving into this on our wellness chat on Kelly and Romeo. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. Minus 31 degrees before wind chill in uh, Yellowknife, as I was saying earlier in the Northwest Territories. And I wanted to say that I went skiing this weekend, downhill skiing with the Toronto Ski Hawks, shout out. But the weather <laughs> weather was not great for skiing. The conditions what? were, you know, slush on ice, which is not great at all in Ontario for skiing. Um, but I thought about, you know, minus 31 has its pluses, right? Well, Got some I people did there. say no, right? Yeah, plus. <laughs> if you wish, you could only wish for the plus degrees is at minus 31. But yeah. how, how is that quality of snow when you think about it's nice, it's a bit crisp, and I'm thinking of building a snow place, but that'd be... Pretty crispy walls, like you know. I guess snow, you'd have to do some know. prep work for sure. Yeah, you don't want too much powder for sure. You want decent packing to make it, but eventually it's going to get those temperatures are going yes. to drop, and I don't, and, and it's going to be that kind of fluffy cold snow. Oh man, mm. sounds like a dream for skiing, yeah. for skiing, not for anything else. I uh, yeah, I guess so. With that nice wind that makes it from minus thirty-one to minus yeah, forty-one on your face, yeah, yeah, going yeah. down that hill. When I used to read the weather, it was like a frostbite in five seconds. It was like, oof. Or spit freezing in two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, speaking of our health while we're doing different things, folks, let's chat about the world of health and wellness with Francis Wong.
Hello, I'm Frances Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. Well, I absolutely love the choice of topic today, Francis. Very interesting. Um, and it's probably around this time of year that we get a bit of cabin fever and kind of hoping for some better weather soon. Just, just keep praying for it. Warmer outdoor activities. Now, as a result of this cabin fever, we end up spending a lot of time indoors. But the plus side of being indoors is at least we're breathing a little bit of cleaner air than most of the air outside, or is that so, Francis? Hey, Kelly. Well, I can relate. Um, whether we're waiting for the rain or the snow to stop falling, we do tend to spend a lot more time indoors during the winter months, and I can't wait until we can enjoy that warm summer temperatures. Kelly, how much time do you think we spend percentage-wise indoors? In the wintertime? Um... I'm going to say in, uh, on a daily basis, uh, I would say that people spend, uh, I'm going to include sleeping time, so there we go. Uh, I, I'm going to say that in a 24-hour period, we spend 23 hours inside yeah. on an average. Ramia, your guess? Yeah, the dog gets me out more, but on average, average person, not pet owners. Uh, I'd even say on average, right? Like, yeah, like 95% go of the time. Like you on Saturday, like, you know. I guess, but in the winter, it's like way, the percentage drops so much. Or, right. Yeah. Okay, well, you guys are doing really good for the guests. A study done by YouGov for the VLEX group in 2018 asked uh, 16,000 members of the public in 14 countries across North America and Europe about their perceptions of indoor living. And people actually thought they spent 18% of their time indoors when the reality is closer to <laughs> oh. 90%. Yeah, what? So, <laughs> how naive. Absolute well, I think denial. Forget, and I think they forget sleeping. Like, I don't, I don't know, we seem to, because it's like, well, you I'm think not you're there. Sleeping you outdoors? take it off the scale. So they just forget <laughs> sleeping altogether. That's Camping, what I think. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. They go to another place uh, so another, where they're outside. <laughs> yeah. So another study published in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Ep Epidemiology in 2001 showed the split as 87%. Uh, spent indoors inside buildings, um, and then 6% inside vehicles, and then an actual 7% um, outside, probably the time spent running from building to the car or waiting for the bus. So regardless of the <laughs> <Wow>. specific percentages, <laughs> we can agree that we spend a lot of time indoors unless your job requires you to be working outdoors. And while we are aware that fresh air is good for us and that there is a lot of outdoor air pollution, did you know that indoor air can be actually up to five times more polluting than outdoor air? That's um, a lot. I think I originally, until we start talking about pollution, always thought indoor just because it's reconstituted and it's like, oh man, it's just, it can't be as, at least as fresh, of course, as outdoor, which again, outdoor has its own negatives and, and indoor, same thing. Um, I'm curious, Francis, what exactly is considered air pollution and why is it a concern for us? Right. So the World Health Organization defines air pollution as contamination of the indoor or outdoor environment by any chemical, physical or biological agent that modifies the natural characteristics of the atmosphere. 
this is a concern to to um, according to who because almost all of the global population, 99% breathe air that exceeds WHO guideline limits and contains high levels of pollutants. The majority of the population affected are those in poorer countries, but we are all exposed to air pollution through things like smog, motor vehicles, household combustion devices, forest fires, and the particulate matter that results from these sources. And of course, if we're breathing this all in, it can cause respiratory or other diseases. In fact, one of the WHO key facts is that household air pollution was responsible for an estimated 3.2 million deaths per year in 2020. So you can see why this is a concern. Oh, yeah. And just to give you a real-life example, you only have to look at the horrible train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, which released chemical toxins into the environment as it was carrying hazardous waste materials, including vinyl chloride and isobutylene. As you probably know, vinyl chloride is used to make plastic resin known as PVC. And in the case of this train derailment, emergency responders decided to burn away the hazardous material. But when vinyl chloride burns, it becomes a volatile organic compound. And according to the National Cancer Institute, it's a carcinogen linked to cancers of the liver, brain, and lungs. Locals report site, um, site pets and livestock dying, so you can only imagine the concerns of the people who live there and the long-term health effects of this on the people and the environment due to the toxins in the air, water, and soil. Man, wow, and you put it in those terms. Um, I know recently a study was done in Canada and London, where I am, turned out six worse pollution in, in the country, and they uh, made a, a drew a similarity to smoking 120 cigarettes a year is what they, they kind of paralleled it to. So with that, Francis, let's talk about the indoor pollution and what are some of the causes of that and what can we do to counteract it? So there are many things that can contribute to indoor pollution, but let's talk about what we bring into the home to start out. Um, when you're out and about during the day, dust and other air pollutants can collect on your clothes or on your pet, and then you trick that into your house. In the segment that we did on allergies and pollen, we talked about pollen landing on our clothes and us bringing it inside our home. So an easy quick fix is to change your clothes once you get home so you're not continuing to breathe and spread pollutants further around. You might even remember the Health Canada alert from back in January, where some giant tiger products, mostly sleepwear, robes, and ski, uh, ski pants, were recalled due to the presence of mold. Most of us are fortunate that we aren't cooking over open fires or inefficient stoves fueled by kerosene, but this is a reality for a third of the world's population. However, we're not in the clear either. Even though we are using gas stoves or electric burners, these still release contaminants like carbon monoxide. So we want to make sure that, you know, when we're cooking, that we're using the vents or fans that are in the kitchen. And of course, you have to make sure that you have a working carbon monoxide detector in your home. The one about the clothes recall because of mold is very yes. interesting. Wow. What are other things that we can do, Francis, to counteract the indoor pollution? Um, if you're lucky enough to live in a part of the country where it's hot enough that you own an air conditioning system, make sure that you check and change the AC filter regularly. Mm -hmm. The filters are there to trap pollutants, and if the filter is full, then it's basically no longer working to filter the air. 
And along with those hot summer days, which seem so far away right now, can come humid and moist conditions, uh, which can be the perfect breeding ground for molds and mildew. When there is a lot of moisture in the air, mold is happy to make a home in your home. So consider getting a good dehumidifier to draw the moisture out of the air. And going back to the clothing at uh, Giant Tiger, it's probably a result of, you know, the transportation of the mm -hmm. clothing through different uh, the containers and things like that where you can get mold moisture buildup. Mm. Um, you can also consider an air filter or air purifier for the home and also open the windows in your home for a few minutes a day to air out the rooms. And if you want something a little more natural, and if you want to spruce up your place, consider the dual purpose of decorating and cleaning your air through the purchase of some indoor plants. Yes. In Indonesia, a study published uh, in the reviews on environmental health in 2020 looked at the application of indoor plants. And although there are no established criteria to specify the best indoor plant, several studies have revealed the capability of indoor plants to remove the harmful substances. Another study published in the Environmental Science and Pollution Research International from 2014 looked at how plants can assist with removing volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, such as formaldehyde, and lab-based studies showed that plants do this directly through absorption and indirectly through biotransformation um, by microorganisms. And if you have hardware floors in your home, it's likely that you have some rugs to decorate and make your home more cozy. If you don't, then consider purchasing some. Rugs are, and carpets are great at trapping dust and other particles in their fibers. All you need to do is clean these regularly once a week, and you've got some nice air filters working for you that are essentially free once you've purchased them, since they don't even require electricity to work. That's and interesting. It is. It I is because of the bad I never thought of rap. that being a, exactly uh -huh. being a positive. You've got three pounds of dirt in your carpet yeah. right here when they're trying to sell you a vacuum. Speaking of filters, uh, make sure that you change the filters in your vacuum on a regular basis. You don't want to vacuum up all the dust only to have it recirculate the next time you use your vacuum. Mm -hmm. right. Do you guys have any tips that you do to keep the air clean in your home? Uh, mm. For the biggest one you mentioned that I follow is just cracking windows open around the house all the time, even if it's uh, like if I've gone two days without opening a window because the weather's really bad, then I feel it. Like I feel the difference in air quality or in just claustrophobia. I'm not really sure what it is, but having just moving air is so important to me on the daily. I, I even feel that when air conditioning is on. If yes. I have too many days where it's just yes. air conditioning, I, I just have to stop it, open up no matter how hot, no matter what, mm -hmm. just to get air to move through. I, I love your vents. I use them when I cook too now, even though what I hate about it, the kitchen went so loud, but <laughs> I noticed the difference immensely, including it just for whatever reason, it seems to suck that air out and bring fresher air in somehow, Francis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the things that people tend to overlook are cleaning supplies since we use them regularly to keep our homes clean. So Health Canada has a webpage that covers how to use household chemicals safely. And one of their tips is to never mix household chemical products together as some mixtures can produce harmful gases and those VOCs that I mentioned earlier. 
And my suggestion is to try using non-toxic household cleaning products instead. And we've talked about the importance of reading the labels of products that you buy, uh, but you can consider even using things that you already have um, at home. People have been using things like white vinegar, lemon juice, baking soda, and castile mm-hmm. soap as alternative cleaning products. And another benefit to making your own products or using natural ones is that a lot of the mass-produced household cleaning products also have a strong scent, and usually the scents are created by synthetic fragrances. I'm not sure if you're aware, but companies don't have to disclose the actual ingredients of fragrances because the mixture of natural and synthetic chemicals are considered trade secrets. So instead, you'll find that they're listed as fragrance on the label, which doesn't really tell you much. Speaking of some um, fragrances, um, if you use air fresheners in your house, I suggest that you toss those out. Again, look for products um, that don't have the synthetic fragrances listed in them. Um, And what's better, sometimes people like to use candles, same thing. Um, Make sure that they are made of vegetable wax or beeswax because they will clean much burner. My personal preference is to use essential oils instead. Um, Those are... Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. Thank you very much. Great topic. Francis Wong joins us bi-weekly to talk wellness opposite our nutrition segment with Julia Carantis. Check back on the podcast because those were great tips. After the break, we're talking about Cantaloupe. They've created an ADA-compliant large-screen vending kiosk made for those with mobility challenges, using wheelchairs, or people with vision impairments. We'll be back with the CRO to find out more. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. For your weekly para-sport chat, and just sport chat in general, check out the Neutral Zone. The panel's excited to welcome one of the most decorated, adapted CrossFit athletes, Jedediah Snelson, and they're learning more about uh, the sport of adapted, um, adaptive CrossFit. And Jedediah is elaborating on his tremendous career. So that's the Neutral Zone. And this week they're releasing their episode on Wednesday, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Also available on YouTube and on audio podcast. Favorite podcast platform. Go there and check out the Neutral Zone. I'm Ramia Amuddin here with Kelly McDonald. And you're tuned into Kelly and Ramia. Cantaloupe has uh, created an ADA-compliant large-screen vending EOS, ladies and gentlemen. This is made for those with mobility issues in a wheelchair and for anyone with a vision impairment. It includes a variety of features to make microtransactions so much easier for everybody. And Jeff Dumbrell, CRO of Cantaloupe, is here to tell us a little bit about this new development. Jeff, welcome to Kelly and Rummy. Appreciate your time. Kelly and Rummy, thanks so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Appreciate it. Jeff, this is exciting. So can you first start by telling us a little bit about the machine? Describe it for us and what accessibility features does it include? Yeah, so if you look at uh, what Cantaloupe does, so we're a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ stock exchange. We have headquarters in Melbourne, Pennsylvania, and offices across the United States. And our core business is really providing digital payments and software services that facilitate self-serve commerce. So think about self-serve commerce as any retail transaction where you don't interact with another person. So 
We recently completed an acquisition of a company called Three Square Market, which, as you mentioned, uh, is a leading provider of ADA compliant and accessible micro market solutions. So the way to think about a micro market, it's a small self-operating retail shop, similar to a small convenience store that you might find in an office complex or in the lobby of a hotel or some other uh, area where there's a large amount of foot traffic. And what happens is we facilitate these micro-market uh, transactions through tablet-based kiosks. Mm -hmm. And one of the ADA-compliant kiosks that we provide for consumers is a large screen format uh, called the 46, which refers to the, the fact that the diagonal dimensions of the, the tablet is 46 inches. So it's equivalent to approximately 116 centimeters. So the way that the solution works is for low vision consumers, the appeal is that it allows the consumer to interact with menu selections and product offers that are highlighted in, in large font sizes. So again, the operator can adjust the, the, the size of the fonts that appear on the screen that the consumer interacts with. And uh, another element of the solution is we also provide the operator to enable audio assistance on the kiosk for those consumers who wish to make their product selections with some assistance from, from audio tags and that kind of thing. So it's really an all-inclusive approach to creating a retail self-service environment that appeals to all consumers, which is really the goal of Cantaloupe. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a fantastic explanation, first of all, of the product and, and where it's used and how it's used and who it's used for. And how has the feedback been, Jeff? Uh, the, the feedback of how to make this product accessible, make it available to all kinds of consumers. What was that feedback like and how was it incorporated into the machine's design? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So we work very closely with you know, different groups of consumers who provided us with firsthand input. In fact, uh, one of the members of our sales organization um, is a low vision consumer, and uh, he's he was uh, very, very instrumental in helping us drive the product direction. And the nice thing about it is that whether it's the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Accessible Canada Act, which is relatively recent, um, it provides us with a great framework for companies like Cantaloupe, quite, quite candidly, to create solutions that foster a barrier-free consumer retail experience. And again, that, that comes from, that's driven from inside the company. And we also have focus groups and we go to, we were at a trade show a few weeks ago in Las Vegas, um, that you know, talking to a, a number of different constituents and consumers. So we we take this all-encompassing view. We want to make sure that we're not missing anything whatsoever in terms of having a you know consumer experience that appeals for everybody. So that's really what drives our our um, our corporate focus and and the way that we approach the market. 
So those conversations are pretty tremendous, and we know that the best way to create something is to get that feedback, Jeff. We also know there's been ideas of places that are like the old automats to get stuff, uh, where, as you say, places where there's foot traffic, places are thinking of less staff and automation, uh, stuff that, you know, we threw away years ago, wanted personality, and now, hey, man, you know what we need? We know Walmart and everywhere else is making it possible for the checkouts that are automated where you don't have to deal with the cashier, check yourself out. So those are some of the reasons that I, I've come up with, and I'm sure you guys have right off the top, but why, answering this for the people out there who are saying, well, why do you really need something that big of a screen, or uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been told and that, how this makes things so much easier to the disabled community out there who need this accessibility, especially going forward in our future? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of drivers to, um, to answer your question. Um, one of the drivers that is really pushing self-service commerce into uh, an accelerated adoption trend is, you know, whether in, in certain parts of North America, there's there's a real challenge finding qualified labor, quite candidly, to to help, um, you know, work in these retail environments. So what that's done, whether it was COVID related or Coming out of COVID, it's COVID. It's really, it's it's encouraged people to look for different ways to serve a wide variety of consumers. And when you look at the ad adoption of cloud technology and the advancements in technology over the last 10, 15 years, there's never been a better time to provide a um, inclusive retail environment that appeals to to all consumers. So. For example, on one of the the 46 inch kiosks, if if someone has mobility challenges, or let's say is is using a wheelchair, they have the opportunity to hit uh, one of the buttons on the screen, and what it does is it drops the screen down to a smaller, more compact area, so that uh, somebody with mobility challenges still has access to the exact same products and services. Um, on the kiosk, which we think is is fantastic. Any future plans, Jeff? Do you know where you're envisioning this machine go from here, next iterations of it, or uh, so on and so forth? Yeah, so so part of what we do for our our business operators who who manage these retail markets, micro markets, is we have a cloud-based software system that allows them to for example, to load product catalogs into their, their product menus. And then from that point, they can take the, um, the backend software and create audio tags for someone with low vision or someone who's blind who, who you know, can benefit from the having these audio tags, help them make product selections and that kind of thing. So I think that's, that's one of those areas that is relatively new and we you'll you'll see a lot you'll see us double triple down on making ex fully accessible solutions available to a variety of consumers now we've talked about micro markets uh and the other half of our business is vending machines and again if you take a look at the 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 innovation taking place in the vending machine business you know we have over a million uh, connected vending machines across the U.S. and Canada, 
So that's an area that we think is particularly interesting and it lends itself to innovation. And there are certainly as an industry, there are things we can do much better to make the vending experience um, so much more inclusive. And that's one of those things that we're, you'll, you'll see us spend a lot of time and energy on going forward. That's amazing. And I think when I hear you say about the tags being one of the more recent things, I have to think that that's some of the feedback that you guys have got, especially seeming, you know, you're watching everywhere around you for where are things going to be? What's it going to, you know, some of the things you've told us so far. So tell us a little bit about what I know you guys seem very open to listen to, that feedback from customers and clients. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. You can, while we've, we've spent a few minutes on my, the micro market segment, one of the other trends that we think is particularly interesting is traditional brick and mortar retail environments that again are really geared towards self-serve checkout. Mm -hmm. So I think I really view that as as an extension to what we've started in the micro market segment, but we have the opportunity as an industry to really take this to a different degree and to a different uh, a different level by making traditional brick and mortar, whether they're grocery stores or specialty retailers, uh, much more inclusive. And again, the fact that we can lean into some very progressive technologies that candidly, many of which were not available 15, 20 years ago. And again, right. the advent of cloud software gives us a chance to, to really drive that forward, which is really exciting. It is very exciting. And seeing machines like this out there and talking about the uh, like how they actually function in an accessible way is exciting also. Now, why are you passionate about this kind of work, Jeff? Again, you know, my, my role in Cantaloupe is to provide value to our vending and micro market operators. And part of that value propositions, we want to make sure that we provide our customers with a platform that allows them to serve all of their customers. So whether it's ADA compliant or access, um, you know, access just in, in different forms in, in, the, in modes, it's, it's really important to us that, you know, nobody is left out or everybody has the ability to have a great retail experience. And again, part of this, you know, the micro market approach is, it, it provides operators with an opportunity to sell fresh foods, fresh snacks, mm -hmm. beverages outside of what I would consider traditional vending type products. So again, it's there, there, there's good on multiple levels taking place. And again, what we're seeing is the consumers looking for healthier choices. And, you know, part of, if, you know, part of our role and that ecosystem is to provide our, our our operator customers with the tool so they can you know provide those goods and services to everybody who walks into the retail environment. Well, I love it. I love the way you speak of it, Jeff. I love the way that you, you can tell it's the philosophy of Cantaloupe and that it can only mean we're gonna benefit. Those of us with disabilities, the people who right. are in the community feeding that information to you guys and you reacting and making things so possible and seeing that future. Thanks for making time for us today and filling us in. My pleasure, thank you so much. Jeff Dumbrell. CRO of Cantaloupe, talking to us about their new accessible and inclusive vending machine. Really incredible uh, piece of gear, but Ramya, I think...
that future in so many areas where we were last year at this time saying, oh my gosh, I, I couldn't use one of those checkout, checkout units. It's not accessible. And we're on the cusp of something cool. Already, exactly, and and that's the the thing you said about reaction to making things more better, more accessible, and also pushing the momentum forward. That's this conversation. We're going to take a break. Come back with the second hour of Kelly and Ramia, and in that hour, we have Young Wong joining us, uh, talking relationships, love, partnerships, the good, the bad, and the lessons that we can take from these experiences. We have voices with Andy Frank, the manager of AMI Audio. He's in Vienna for the Zero Project right now. We're going to learn more about that. But after the break, we're talking about Lego making its way to some Nova Scotia libraries with community reporter Julie Martin. We'll be right back. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.